Well, good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and welcome. If this is your first time, really welcome. If it's your second time, really welcome. And if you've been here for like 10 or 12 years, 15, 16 years, you're exceptionally welcome. Don't want to miss anybody. Just got back from a trip with uh, our senior pastor Rob and his wife Liz to Spain. And it was a, a great trip. It, it was an awesome encounter for us. And I thought I'd share a little bit about that this morning and uh, how that plays into a message that I believe that God has for us from His Word. Rob, I think, would be honest to tell you that he's come back. Our church has interacted with Spain for probably at least right around 10 years or more in doing some uh, work there. And he would probably tell you he's come back a number of times and said, God, I don't know if I'm going back or not. I, I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what the next steps are and how it's going to work. And we came back on the plane writing out lists of things that we could do and opportunities and ideas for going back and, and how God's using us. And I'd like to share that with you this morning because God's doing something. I think what He's doing there is something that He wants us to do here. Our background for going to Spain was like this. We, we got involved in in some prayer ministry walks where folks had a heart and a burden to go and just pray for Spain. Like many developed countries in the world, um, we've fallen away uh, from our faith. Um, you, you know, you see churches empty uh, like we do in our own towns here in, in the States. And you see people that aren't, that kind of claim some kind of religious association but aren't necessarily walking and looking for God regularly. And there was prayer walks that were going on and, and people were praying about Spain, feeling a burden um, to go into Spain and do that. And our church became involved in how maybe we can be involved in a church planting effort to put a, a vineyard or La Viña in Spanish, um, church presence, evangelical presence in Spain. And have been involved a number of years with financial support. We've taken youth groups and young groups and servant evangelism, done a lot of things in Spain and um, helped with a church planning effort and kind of had various levels of success and things going on. And then you mix that with what's happened in Spain over the last, I'll just take it back 14 or 15 years, around 2000, the unemployment in Spain was 15%. 15% unemployment. And it, it started improving, and by 2006 or seven, it was down to, I don't know, 6 or 7% officially. And then the, the crisis hit, and you guys remember the crisis. Who does not remember the crisis or late 2007-2008, right? And you remember how it affected us. Well, it affected Spain as well, and their unemployment soared as high as 26 or 7%. And today it's still at 24. Uh, and when you think about it's control A, select all employment, and a quarter of that, it, there's no jobs. And it's been going on now for a decade and a half or more. That's painful, isn't it? Um, and a lot of pain. And like it is in many times when there's a physical or economic struggle, there's also a spiritual crisis that follows along too, isn't there? And that's probably pretty much the way we could explain things in our own country. I mean, it's not dissimilar to what we've experienced when people have hard times. Uh, sometimes that hardness goes off into the spiritual realm and, and how we experience that too. Uh, so we've had some ups and downs. And about uh, on one of the trips that Rob and Liz had made, 
one of the acquaintances they've met, it was taking them across Spain and he stopped at a small town for lunch on the way across and that town was Osuna. And about two and a half years ago, uh, out of nowhere, Rob's only experience in that town was lunch. Uh, a couple of years ago, Rob had this experience that he felt like God told him, you need to go to Osuna and stir it up spiritually. And I think there was 11 of us uh, that went. Raise your hand if you're in the room today that you went to Spain. Look around the room. You can see that there's about, there was 11 of us that went to Spain 18 months ago. When we went to Osuna and found um, a small town uh, with a Catholic parish. And, and I think there's four or five churches there in town. Um, but not a real strong presence of people that are leaning into God. I think that's a fair way to say it. And we prayed. Um, it's, in, it's in a warm place of Spain where it's dry most of the time. And we had prayed and prayed and prayed about our trip. Uh, and we were there. And over the period of the uh, 30 days, more or less, that Rob and Liz were there, and the 10 days or so that the rest of us were there, it rained 27 of those 30 days. Um, and we spoke and we prayed over that town. We asked God to bless that town and bless the people and call it out. And we went back and we found that they've decided to do a, a someone's doing a, a movie production, brought 1,500 people into that small town. The hotels were full. Well, the hotel uh, <laughs> is full. Uh, the economy's starting to take off, at least in this window of time. It'll probably attract attention to itself just because you bring a movie production into a town like that. And it was really exciting to see it. Um, we had a lot of God stories that happened during the week. We first went to Spain because we wanted to attend the Spain National Conference. Remember I told you that we were trying to plant a vineyard. There's been some efforts of that. And it's just been a few years ago or less, we were wondering if any of the small churches that had been planted there were actually going to be able to survive. And we went and met in Barcelona. And four, there's now five vineyard churches, Vina, in Spain. Yeah, isn't that exciting? And four of them were represented there. At, we probably had a couple hundred people in the sessions that we had, in a couple of sessions that we had. It was extremely exciting uh, to see God moving and God's hand there. Uh, one of the stories, I, uh, a week before I uh, went, uh, I was running with Henning and Eddie, and uh, twisted my ankle. I mean, nothing like going to go on a place or go on a mission trip. We're going to do all this kind of walking. My ankle looks like, you know, Shrek's foot or something like that. And, and uh, people had prayed, and the pain just went away, but the swelling didn't. And I had invited Kevin and Mary to join me in as my prayer partners while I'm gone, and I emailed back and forth with them a few times. And uh, in one of the email exchanges, I'd asked Kevin to pray, and he sends, he sends me this email back, and he said, uh, I'm just praying that maybe one of those Spaniards would pray for you today and they get to experience God's joy of seeing you healed and, uh, or, or something to that effect. And so the last day of the session, we're there at this Vineyard National Conference and there was a call out for anybody feeling like, are you feel like God's leaning into you to maybe plant another church here in Spain? And like 20 or so people moved off to the side and I'm over there praying with these people and it was, it was awesome. Awesome kind of experience to think that people's calling them out. In the midst of where they're at economically and where they're at, they're like, God wants us to do something. So it's really a great work. And I'm there praying, and, and, the, and the service kind of concludes. 
and, we're, and people are up and moving around and talking and different things, and I'm getting pulled over to translate for this and say this and do this. And I see a young man across, across from this side where I was standing over here, and he points over at me and waves at me, points over and waves at me, and he comes over and he goes, I don't know what it is, uh, but I feel like God's told me I'm supposed to come pray for you today. I said, did you read Kevin's email? <laughs> and no, he didn't know. He doesn't know Kevin. But that was really cool. And he came over and he prayed. And, and he said, what am I supposed to pray for? I said, well, I know what you're supposed to pray. You're supposed to pray about my ankle. And he prayed for me and it was a great encounter. Little stories, but for eight straight days, there was one God story after another for Rob, Liz, and I. And it was really, really exciting. So I'm glad to share that with you. Um, but Spain's been in a deep hurt. But yet, I think God's stirring. Now I have a question for you. Have you ever been in a very low and painful point in your life? I'm hearing a lot of, man, that didn't take long. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about, right? That really place that it's really hard. I'm not talking about the superficial wound. We, you know, you broke the nail and, it's gonna, you know, how are you going to get that ready or you're going to be, you know, twisted an ankle. But I mean the serious illness or a loss of work. That surprise message from your boss that morning, uh, can you go ahead and get your stuff together? Or the call that says it's cancer. Or that call that says mom's gone. You know what I'm talking about. It's, it's deep. It's a hurtful place. Many in Spain are at that point of despair. And you wonder what God's going to do. And we're pleased. One of the couples that we spent time with over the years, Alfonso and Sousi, how many of you guys know them? They've been here before. So a lot of you do. A lot of you know them. We, we spent the last couple nights at their house in Dos Hermanas. And they're attending a church right now that does this obra social, this social work that's providing food that's given by the government and or supermarkets and packaging up fresh fruits and vegetables in big cartons. And people can come in and bring what we would call similar kind of their welfare status card and come in and they could take one of these. And so they work with thousands of kilos, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of food and a couple of days a week in this one location, and they're helping as an outreach from their church to their community. And I'm not talking about people that are in the lower uh, social economic status or local kind of pl- uh, lower income place all the time. I'm talking about people that are in middle to upper income level backgrounds, and they've been empl- unemployed for a number of years. And they're coming in. And they're not used to asking for food. Not that anybody ever gets to a place that way, but it's hard. And there's a lot of this, you know, coming in well there's 17 people in this place alfonso asked rob and i if we'd get up early in the morning and we'd get in the truck and drive over and pick up literally several hundred pounds of fruit and vegetable liz went over to the location where they were going to distribute it and she was working and she goes oh i don't need an exercise gym if i'm going to do this moving all these boxes and stuff and we get together and there's 17 people volunteers that they have working and i believe 10 of them are not believers They've just said, hey, I'm not sure what you guys are doing here, but can we help? And they have needs as well, and they're volunteering to help. Every morning, the mornings they get started, they gather the group together and they pray. And some of the people who aren't believers, like, I'm not sure what that's about, but, you know, they're just asking God, multiply the food that we have here for all the needs of the people that are coming. 
the, the pastor of the church that going there said when the shelves were just constructed, they put their hands on them and said, God, may these never be empty again. And he says, they haven't been. They showed me pictures. Sometimes it's stacked up here. People just keep giving, you know. Supermarkets are raising food. They're always there. And so these people are coming and watching and observing and they're being a part of it. And it's affecting them. You know, the volunteers. They're saying, this is being done in God's name. Well, look what God's doing. And, and kind of great outcome stories of that. Well, we finish working. We're getting ready to leave, Rob and Liz and I. And Salcy comes running out, literally out into the um, uh, outside of the, the storefront where we were at. And she grabs me. And, of course, you know, she doesn't speak English. And she says, hey, there's a lady in here that's one of our volunteers. She's not a believer. And she'd like prayer. Would you guys like to, would you guys be able to pray for her? Like, you know, look at three pastors says, can you come pray for someone? Like, duh, you know, yeah, of course we can. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm sorry, we're busy. We, we, we you know, make an appointment, you know. Of course we'll come pray for. Well, she was just saying if somebody could speak Spanish, because, yeah, one of the guys in the group speaks Spanish. You know, and she was asking, who are these Americans? Why are they here? And she said, oh, they're pastors. And, and um, so we took her in, and, and she said, no, you know, she didn't want to be in front of anybody. And, she, and so we went back with her, Rob, Liz, and I, and Salcy to a side room, and she just, shared her, her heart and how broken she is and, and that her son has gotten legal problems and he's going into prison and, and just a lot of things like that. And could we pray for her? And we just prayed God's blessing. We played the presence of Jesus to come for her and to interact with her. And she just should have seen it, just how it seemed like the Spirit of God just was moving within her and starting to bring healing. I, she didn't accept Jesus at that moment. Don't get me wrong that something great like that happened, but it was just great to see God minister and move within her like that. And so there's that response to what, what happened in prayer. And today's message, I really the theme of it for me is around how we respond to God in these deep, dark times. Can turn in, if they turn into an act of obedience and service to Him, become faith builders for us and for others. Well, let me pray that that would be so. If you let me pray again one more time. God, I invite you to come here. As we open up your scriptures now and look at them, that you would just speak to us and how we should respond in the dark times. And I'm sure it's the same even in the good times. How we could be obedient to you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. We're in this series in the books in the Bible of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai, talking about leadership, building, and faith. All the story about rebuilding of the temple. And you remember, and you've heard this story, we've gone through it over a number of weeks, so the story of, of Israel. And how by the time of Solomon, and this is around, we'll call it 950 B.C., before Christ, time frame, when a glorious temple had been constructed. And Israel was at the pinnacle of its power and influence over all that part of the world. And the temple was overlaid, places overlaid with gold, a bronze laver that was out in front where they would wash, the altar over covered with bronze, and inside gold laden, pure gold articles. It was a glorious thing. And you remember the story where when, they, when Solomon came in and they laid their hands on it, God's presence came down where the priests couldn't even go in. It was so wonderful. And that was at the pinnacle of, of Israel's influence in the world and God's relationship with them. And over the course of the next 300 years, 
they started moving away from God. And prophets would call out and say, guys, we've got to stop this. We can't fall into worshiping other gods. We can't do those kinds of practices. God's going to judge us. And finally, by the time of Jeremiah the prophet, it weren't turned to a warning to a declaration. God's judging us. The northern Israel is divided, if you will, into two kingdoms, the northern, northern and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, after warning, after warning, after warning, finally fell to a, a vicious force of the Assyrians. They came in and really ransacked all of northern Israel. I'll put it in the context of us. You can imagine everything outside of the northeastern part of the United States, gone, ransacked, ran over. And in 2 Kings, it tells us the Assyrian king came in after the people they'd taken off into exile and the captivity of slaves. He actually brought people in from Babylon and other countries to actually populate Israel. Others who didn't worship the God of Israel and Yahweh. And the last prophet on the scene was calling out to, to Judah, that southern kingdom, where Jerusalem was standing and said, guys, we, we can't do the same. But they did. And they fell away from God. An interesting thing that I read in one of the Scripture accounts, it said, they worshipped other gods, followed pagan practices, and did secret things. Not pleasing to Yahweh, the Lord their God. Secret things. Things done in the rooms. Things done in the private places. We always think about these kind of corporate things, sins, and that people fell because corporately they didn't follow God, but it's even the things that they did in private. And God judged them. Kind of a bleak story, isn't it? And then we get to the southern kingdom, and Aureli told you some of this story last year, and that glorious temple, Babylon, came in and tore the walls down around Jerusalem, took the temple and completely destroyed it, that big bronze, one piece of bronze labor that was out front, beautiful, and all the articles of gold, they broke it up and carried it all off to Babylon. Not only that, they took off all the leaders. They took all the leaders, all the business leaders, responsible people, the people of royalty, some tens of thousands of people, and took them into slavery to Babylon. And what was not torn down, they burned. Jerusalem ravaged just 360 years before that it was the glory and the pinnacle of that part of the world and now it is just ravaged and laid bare and that's the place of our story today because jeremiah had said this to them if there's bibles up front and some other bibles i'm not using overhead today uh didn't get a chance while i was in spain so if you don't have a bible i encourage you to do this but we're going to look at a couple of books one's jeremiah and one's ezra so take out, I see iPhones and different things, electronic stuff come out, or Androids, or whatever. And uh, turn in, uh, digitize up the scriptures, or turn to the pages. Yeah. The first we're going to look at is Jeremiah 29. And I want to call this out to you because before... The Babylon army, army, they were outside the gates. They, before they'd come into Jerusalem, this word comes to Jeremiah the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. 
you will be in Babylon for 70 years. But then I will come and do for you all the good things I've promised. And I will bring you home again. Now this, those words were called out prophetically before they had ever been ransacked. Before the, the temple had been destroyed yet. He even tells them to where they're going to how long it would be. And he goes on. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. And if you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. First, I'm always amazed when God uses a person like this and calls out prophetic words of things that are going to happen. And, and sure enough, if we fast forward into our story, it's where they're at 70 years later. And God uses some different people to give us accounts of what happens at this end of 70 years. We did some study out of Haggai with Pastor Rob several weeks ago. He was one of the priests. And you know stories about Nehemiah. And there's a book that tells about the rebuilding of, of the walls with him. And he was one of the cupbearers of the king of Persia. One of the royal officials. And our story today will be from the book of Ezra. And he was a priest and a scribe at this time. And he starts pinning these words for us. And I'll turn, if you'll turn with me now to Ezra chapter 1, here's what he says. I just saw Alan turn to it. He can do it faster than I can turn in a book. I don't know how he can do that, but um, Ezra chapter 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. If you had been a Jew at that time, and just to hear that verse, that would have been one of the most glorious words of verses. You would have all been shouting, Amen to that. It's over. It's finished. He's completed what he said in Jeremiah, and the 70 years are finished. And God stirred the heart of Cyrus, the king, to put his, this proclamation in writing, and he sent it throughout his kingdom. This is what the... King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Is that not incredible? God stirs within Cyrus, the king, after these 70 years, and he tells them, you guys go back. I know your God's there, and I want you to go back and rebuild your temple. Anybody who wants to go, just head on back. Don't worry about your visas. Don't worry about your passports. All that stuff cleaned up, you can go. Those of us who have interacted traveling internationally, some of you have relocated here. You know what it is to get your visas and your passports and all the problems that is. Took care of all that. You don't need to worry about it. It goes on in the chapter and says this in verse 5. And then God stirred the hearts of the priests, the Levites, and the leaders of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of the Lord. And all the neighbors assisted by giving them articles of silver and gold, supplies for the journey and livestock, 
they give the many valuable gifts in addition to all the voluntary offerings. And the rest of the chapter goes on to tell us all the things. King Cyrus says, oh, you know what? Nebuchadnezzar, the king I overthrew from Babylon, he carried off all the stuff and it's in the, it's in the warehouse. Uh, go get all that stuff and give it to him and have him take it back. And it goes through all the articles of stuff that were there. It says, take all that back with you. Is that not amazing? And so after 70 years, the words of the prophet Jeremiah are completed and they're taking everything, they're given a free ticket to go back. Remember Jeremiah had said, if you'll look for me wholeheartedly, that is, if you'll seek and ask of me, with everything that's in you, be totally focused on me, he said you would find me. The idea of you would encounter me. They've been away a long time from their homeland. From that place where the temple was, where God's presence would come and interact and they'd have a relationship, that kind of relationship with the God of Israel. And those 70 years are completed. And now God's stirring in the hearts of the king. Classify him as a non-believer at this point. Of the Levites, the priests, the other leaders to go back. And through chapter 2, it leads us through a list of the families who raised their hand and said, let's do this. Let's go back. And he gets down to verse 64, and he says this, chapter 2, 64, a total of 42,000 in the NLT, 42,360 people returned to Judah. I think there were a lot more people there, folks. I think there were a lot more than just 42,000 of the Jews of the remnant that were there. I think there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, had been dispersed. But 42,000, at least in this account by Ezra, said, we'll go back. Now, this is pretty remarkable. Because relocating is not easy. Aurelie and I have done that, what, 11, 12, 13 times? I don't know. Uh, and it's not easy. Come home from work and... Of course, I'd already given her a heads-up call. Guess what happened today? <laughs> and she said, where are we going? You know, do I need a passport? And that kind of thing. And a little family meeting. And the girls, by the time we got to the ninth move or so, we'd say, hey, girls, we need to talk today. And, they, and you know, Alan was a little guy. And, and the girl's like, where are we going? You know. Well, this was a 900-mile journey from Babylon back to Jerusalem. 900 miles. It's like, maybe from here to Chicago, here to Atlanta. And it wasn't like, okay, guys, we're going to book the flights and we're going to make this happen. We're going to take this train and make it happen. Or we'll just take the cars and, you know, we're all going to kind of fall. No, this is on foot, 900 miles. I mean, Kevin, Mary wants to go on vacation, but if you had to tell her, like, you know, we're going to move and it's going to have to walk and it's 900 miles, that would be a, a hard thing to convince her of. A hard thing to convince any of us of. But God moved them to do it. And so they move. And then we get to chapter 3. And we read this. Verse 1. I really love this book. You know, this is like... I saw the movie 
the Bible, and this is a lot better. And listen to this. In early autumn, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, and so they've gone back, they've all kind of moved back to Israel, they've settled in their towns. You remember the story in Haggai? They've all built their houses, and he has a call out to them. Hey, guys, you've got your houses. What about the temple? That's the place where the story is right now. They're all in their towns, and all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. And then Jeshua, son of Jezadak, joined his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, son of Sheatel, with his family in rebuilding the altar of the God of Israel. They wanted to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, as instructed in the law of Moses, the man of God. And even though the people were afraid of the local residents, they rebuilt the altar at its old site. And then they began to sacrifice burnt offerings on the altar to the Lord each morning and evening. The people assembled in Jerusalem, these 40-some thousand exiles and all that were remaining, we, we remember that they had repopulated the land, the Assyrian king, with foreigners. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, had said, you know what? Leave the very poorest of the poor here and let them take care of the vineyards and the fields for me. And that's what they came back to. And they came back and they saw 70 year, years of decaying burnt wood and stones turned over. The complete wall that encircled all of Jerusalem destroyed. The gates destroyed. The temple completely to the ground. All that was there is just gone. You know, I can be gone a week on vacation this summer and, and doesn't your grass grow like, you know, a foot? 70 years of just overgrowth of shrub and brush. Mike's cleaned out some of that. He knows he's already like, oh, gosh, you know, get the brush hog out. We gotta, how are we going to clean this up? And it's a mess. And that's what they've come back to. And the people gather up and they gather around and they join together in rebuilding the altar. You know, if your house was destroyed, as much as Aureli likes to cook, I can't imagine the first thing you say is, I want the builder to go in, I want him to build the kitchen first. Build the kitchen. Don't worry about the outside of the walls or anything else like that. Just build the kitchen. Seems to be kind of an awkward way to start. You know, do we build the walls first and protect us, or, or we'll build the temple or a place like that? But they go and they build the altar. I wonder why. And they confronted fears. The locals that were there. I mean, it's been their home for 70 years. And who's come back? It's not the same people who left 70 years before. There now it's their children or their grandchildren. Or maybe even some great-grandchildren that are coming back. We find out at the end of chapter 3, there's still a few that remember the old one and they weep. But it's a mixture of all kinds of youth and children and people that are standing around. And they rebuild the altar and they begin to worship. As the law required, it says. Exodus 29 in the law of Moses said this. Every day, take two lambs. And of the morning, sacrifice one of those lambs. And of the evening, you sacrifice one of the lambs. And all the detail to do that. That was to be a perpetual sacrifices every day from generation to generation, he said. The first thing they want to do is go back and establish and rebuild the, the, uh, 
the altar and start this sacrificial system again. And that's what they did. In verse 10, I'll jump down a little bit and let's finish this and we'll come back and recap. When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow the trumpets. And the Levites, descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He's so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. And then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. So they've rebuilt the altar. They've started the sacrificial system. They're doing all the other sacrifices that they can. And they rebuild just the foundation of the temple. The walls still there. They're still stepping over stones and mortar and old bricks and uh, stones and burned out wood and moving things into brush piles. But they're rebuilt what's the foundation of the temple. And they can shout out in the midst of all of that debris and they can say, God is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. In verse 12, but many of the older priests, Levites, and other leaders who had seen the first temple wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud noise that could be heard far in the distance. This wasn't a little... <laughs> it was wailing. It was shouting and, and joy. As I lift my voice, they were all lifting their voices and praising God for what He had done. They celebrated. Now I'd like to kind of recap this with a couple of questions. Why do you think they worked so hard to get back? I mean, it was a lot of effort. You lived 70 years in Babylon. You kind of put some roots. How many of you guys lived more than five years where you're at right now? Lift your hand. Okay. How many of you lived more than 10 years where you're at right now? How hard would it be to move? If we said tomorrow you're going to move. How hard would that be? Would that be hard? What if you've been in that place for 70 years as a family? Yeah, maybe you need a change of scenery, right? Well, maybe the first reason they went back is a good reason, and that was to go home, right? I mean, to the, the to the place where their their roots are. Uh, I was sharing this story with Vimari with V this morning, and, um, and as I was teaching with the uh, going through this sermon with the folks that are teaching classes, and. She said, I was, my roots are from Puerto Rico, but I've never been there. But if I had to go back or went there, my mom have told me so much about it, I know where my roots are. And I'm sure Rayleigh, as she was born in Mexico, would tell you, I know where my roots are. And she was there for the first 30 years of her life. And if she had to go back or could go back, maybe she would. And maybe many of you are from other countries. I look around this room and you say, I know where my roots are. I go back. And, and that, that's a good reason. But maybe not enough. And maybe a better reason it's a land where they, as a people, have experienced God and His blessings, right? I mean, you think back in their history, maybe God will reestablish us. The prophets said He's going to raise up another king, another prophet like Moses. There'll be somebody else, and they're, they're hoping. And that, that's that hope that would drive them to maybe go back. And that's a good reason, but maybe it's not enough. 
I think the last is found in why they started the sacrificial system again and restarted it. And you might think, well, that's odd. Why would you start wanting to sacrifice animals and do that kind of thing? Because that's what God had asked him to do. And he said this when he outlined that requirement for sacrifices twice a day. In Exodus 29.42, he said this. These burnt offerings are to be made each day from generation to generation. Offer them in the Lord's presence at the tabernacle entrance. There I will meet with you and speak with you. You know what they wanted? They wanted to renew the relationship with their God. He had said, if you'll do this every day, I will meet with you there. I will meet with you there. And that's what they wanted. As a people, they wanted to come back. The temple's still torn down. The foundation's up. They're offering sacrifices, but they're at the gate of that tabernacle and they're standing there and they're offering sacrifices and they're believing that their God's going to show up and He's going to be there because He promised that He would. That's why they went back. They were following in obedience to do what God had called them to do. And their first priority, I think they got it right, was we want a relationship. We want to renew our relationship with God. Oh yeah, the temple and all these things can be done, but let's let's get back to renewing our relationship with God first. And that's how they responded in their tough time. I almost missed something in this as I was reading through it, and I just went back and reading the chapters again, and something else stood out to me. Back in chapter one, it said God stirred the heart. God moved. He did something. He awakened them to act. God can do that, but you know what? God wants to awaken us. He wants to stir us. He created a spark within them, a desire to do something unexplainable to the people around them. Hey, let's take off and move. Can you imagine a horde of some 40,000 people moving 900 miles, what that was like? Scriptures don't even mention it. It just happened. They're just there. I mean, you think about your family of four or five moving, you know, across, you know, Milford or across Hopkinton or, or somewhere in our local area. You think, oh, what the work that would be, you know. Bob Buck just put his head down because they just moved recently. Like, oh, man, that was a job. It was just four of us. But can you imagine? God wants to stir our hearts to act. He wants to do that. Not only can He do it, He wants to. And He's looking to do that in our lives. When we're down and out, when we're at that lowest place that we can possibly be, God's calling out and He wants to stir our hearts. You don't have to wait to that low place to happen, but He wants to move within us and to do something. He's longing to do that. He's not waiting and wanting us to get to a place of complacency. He's wanting right now where we're at right now to stir within our hearts to do something for Him. In ministry time in Spain, there was a number of people come forward. Uh, lots of people come forward and were praying. And you find yourself when you're translating doing double work, right? You know, you're praying for somebody, then you're also translating for somebody else. And I can't tell you how many people came to me and said, 
I'm looking and, and it was like, I'm studying all this. You got all this in my mind, right? And they're coming to me and say, I'm just looking for whatever God will tell me today. I said, well, usually I'd say to them, well, what's God told you to do? Where, where are you at right now? And they'd list all these things. And how are you in that? Well, I'm struggling with this. And I said, I think God's saying you're supposed to finish what you started. And then he'll have something new for you. And that was not always well received. But that's where we're at many times, right? We want, okay, God, this isn't really working out real well, so would you give me something new? You know? And we'll read in future weeks probably about this story, the struggle to get the temple up and the walls up and all that went on. But we sometimes kind of get discouraged because God's called us to do something, stirred us to do something like, well, yeah, but can I do that later? Maybe somebody else can pick up and take up that for me. Today I'd like to ask you a few things, and that would be, is God stirring something in you? Would you close your eyes with me just for a minute? Just open your palms, your hands up. Just open your palms up. I'm just, you don't have to. If this is kind of freaky for you, don't do it. But you know, open your hands up to me in a place to receive something. And I'm just going to ask that God would stir something in you right now. Be totally distracted by God. There's nobody else in the room but you right now and God. And you're hearing my voice and I'm calling out, God, would you please stir within me, stir within us what you're calling us to do? Would you just stir within us what you're calling us to do? Thank you. Amen. Why did God do this? Because He loves them. He loves His people. He brought them back because Israel was His people and He loved them. Why does He call me out of the place where I was at and the place where my life? Because He loved me. Why does He want to interact with you? Because He loves you. He wants to have a relationship with each one of us. He wants to have that relationship and stir us. He wants us to go to that place of, of interaction with Him so that He can speak to us and meet with us there. He wants us to be in this posture spiritually, if not physically, of say, God, just speak to me. Just stir within me what You want me to do. God wants that of us. And today, if you're looking for that, then I'm going to ask you to be in a place where God can stir that up within you. As the worship, worship team would come on up, I appreciate they come on up. I'd like you to listen to what else He might be asking of you. I want you to be sensitive to God's stirring and what He's already asked you to do. So that you can be attentive to complete what God started in you and finish it. If you're struggling with finishing something, maybe it's a good day for you to come forward for prayer. If you're looking for God to stir into you what He's calling you to do, maybe that would be a good time to come forward for prayer and we can pray together. Could you dim the lights for me? Could you stand with me today? Would you stand? As they get ready to play, I want these words to go into your mind. Maybe you're looking for something new to happen. You want God to stir that within you. I want you to come and meet with us to pray. Maybe God stirred something new and something old that needs to be finished. Don't expect Him to lead you into new areas until you finish the altar. Don't expect to start laying this temple foundation in your life until the altar's been laid. He wants a relationship with you. 
And Jesus went to the cross on a rescue mission for you personally. If you're not sure about that, today's a great day to come up and talk to somebody about what it is for Jesus to enter into your life and be king of your life. I want you to put seeking his presence first in all that you do. That's what Israel did at this time. A time of their deepest, darkest hour when they called away and they were broken as a people, they came back and rebuilt the altar so they could be in the presence of God afresh and new. Is God doing something in your life today? As a church body, we know He's doing something. He's called us to a new place. It may not look like it when we start worship service, but if you look around the room now, we're full. And God's doing something. And He's causing us to grow and He's leading us into new places. And He has us on a building campaign. And as a people, we need to come to Him and say, God, what do you want us to do? Because there's many, many, many people in our communities around us that do not know Jesus, that are seeking to have a relationship with Him. And we want to be a place that we can help do that. Would you join me and join us in that? We're going to worship and then we'll have one final call for prayer. Holy is your name. The people shouted, He's so good. His faithful love endures forever. This morning before service, some folks were praying and, and had some words or thoughts. And Kevin, you want to share those with us? Some prayer. And if our prayer team, those could come up, I'd appreciate it. Hi, I'm Kevin. Just want to share a few verses. Um, this is Isaiah 45:22. Let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God and there is no other. John 3:21. Uh, uh, but those who do what is right uh, come to the light, so others can see that they are doing what God wants. And then Proverbs 17:24. Sensible people keep their eyes glued on wisdom but a fool's eyes wander the um, ends of the earth. Um, so I just feel like the, these three, the, the message from these three verses is that uh, God is here, he, he's above all things, and that he just he, he wants us to come to him with whatever we need this morning, um, as opposed to going off on, on our own and, uh, and trying to solve our own problems. So I, I just... I just believe the invitations for, for us to come to him this morning. Uh, so if that means anything, I, I just encourage you to respond to him. Um, any things Jeff mentioned or you want prayer for anything else, we'd, we'd love to pray with you. So if God's stirring you this morning, or you're seeking him to stir you for something, or if you have a need physically or something that's inhibiting you, whatever it might be spiritually, come forward for prayer. Come forward for prayer. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I bless you. I ask that God would bless you in your lives and what you do this week, and that you would go in peace and take the message, the rescue message of Jesus to those around you. Come forth for prayer now. If you need prayer, if not, uh, enjoy the week and take your conversations out the foyer. God bless you. Amen.